Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut is lucky to have many cultural institutions, but coronavirus has shut down visits to your favorite museum or performance hall for the time being. Later this hour, we'll hear how the staff at the Connecticut Historical Society has worked to share some of its exhibits online. Now, there's no question this pandemic has left the U.S. economy in big trouble. Are you an employer who doesn't know how you'll stay operational? Or are you a worker with questions about how to navigate the next few weeks and months if you become unemployed? Coming up, we'll talk with attorney Dan Schwartz of Shipman and Goodwin. Here's the number to call with your question, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, Governor Ned Lamont says Connecticut residents should stay home, but people are still heading out to get essentials like food. Standing near lots of customers at the local stop and shop or Costco is not social distancing. Now, a local farm may be a good option to pick up products or have them delivered. Many Connecticut farmers are busy getting ready for the growing season. Joining us now by phone is Brian Hurlbert, Commissioner of the State Department of Agriculture. Commissioner, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. I'll let our listeners know you've given me permission to call you Brian. So I, first off, I wanted to, just to be clear, are Connecticut farm stands and farmers markets open for business under Governor Lamont's latest executive order? Thank you. Thank you for that question. And the answer is yes. We worked with the governor's office last week to make sure under one of the previous executive orders that farmers markets and farm stands uh, were, were you know, essentially classified as grocery stores providing food access in urban and rural communities. Um, and through the guidance document that was um, released last evening, um, they're expressly permitted um, under uh, Executive Order 7H. Now, spring just started, but there have been occasional winter markets around our state. How many of those have remained open, Commissioner? So we're actually compiling that information, and we, we're hoping to have it um, ready for today or this morning. Unfortunately, um, you know, a Friday and the weekend um, put us a little sideways with other tasks um, uh, regarding to, to the executive order. Um, but we will be releasing a list. What we're doing is um, calling the different markets and farm stands to make sure that they are remained open. You know, if, if a farmer's market was in a, in a town library or in a public space or a school, um, they may not be open. And so we are working in partnership with the Connecticut uh, Northeast Organic Farmers Association to create an interactive map so that um, consumers can go and look where, you know, where their community is, what's open or what's nearby, um, and what they have available at the different farms, uh, farms and farmers markets. Um, so that'll be released shortly. But right now, there's about 20 options that that we know for sure are are open. And I and I strongly encourage people to go to ctcrone.gov, and we'll have that link up there um, later today um, for them to check out the map and and find how and where they can support uh, their local farming community. You said ctgrown.gov. 
Perfect. Well, now that COVID-19 is in our state, uh, from your department, how are you uh, offering guidance to farmers uh, to deal with the fact that we have this virus among us and, and how that might impact their work? Well, this is really important. The governor has done a great job of communicating best practices and, and reminding people. Um, and we've done that at the department and echoed um, his message. So we've been sending out regular reports, um, distributing posters, um, encouraging employers, and their, you know, the farmer operators, owners, or for the, the uh, food manufacturers to have conversations with your employees. You know, make sure that they know they should be washing their hands regularly. Make sure they know that if they're not feeling well, that they shouldn't come in and go through what the leave policy is um, for each individual operation. Um, we distributed posters, both in English and Spanish, to be put up around the operation. Um, we've included guidance from the CDC and the FDA about proper food handling and what to do, you know, make sure that, you know, your break rooms are, are wiped down, um, how to stagger shifts or reduce the number of people that are in one area at a certain time. Um, it's really important that we, we continue to emphasize this message because this, these are the easy things um, that can be done to help reduce the, the spread of, of COVID-19. Um, so we're, we're consistently met, uh, met I'm sorry, uh, communicating this out, messaging this out to, uh, to our regulated communities um, and making sure that they see and, and pay attention to it um, in their operations. And, and Lucy, I started you know, talking to people about a week and a half ago um, about this, just kind of thinking that <clears throat> they were already doing these things and just want to remind them and see, you know, what else we could do. And, and as I had more of these conversations um, with with farmers and with manufacturers and processors, they said, oh, you know, that's a good idea. We, we didn't have a conversation with our employees yet. Um, let's make sure we do that. And so, you know, we, we can't take anything for granted. Um, and it becomes really important that the department plays that role of uh, providing information and guidance and uh, aggregating good information and guidance, because as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of um, bad information or, or um, um, non-tested information out there. Um, and we just want to make sure people know um, that the department is working with our partner organizations, um, the folks down in D.C., around the country to get good information out to Connecticut farmers to make sure that they're practicing um, safe and healthy uh, procedures on the farm and that, that, that will ensure that our food system remains strong and viable through all of this. You're hearing Brian Hurlbert on Where We Live, Commissioner of the State Department of Agriculture. And we hear about um, different organizations having to really be nimble and change the way they operate. How are farmers responding to this crisis? Uh, you know, it's, it's common for people once the season really kicks in for uh, to be hosting uh, visitors on your farm where they're able to pick what they want. Uh, but that is not necessarily a smart thing when we think about social distancing. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up. You know, Connecticut farms have been in business for hundreds of years. And the only way a business stays around for that long is by being innovative and entrepreneurial and meeting customers uh, based on new constraints or market demands. Um, and so one of the things that we've done uh, from the department level and we've encouraged um, farmers markets and farm stands to do is, is um, do curbside pickup or, or, or delivery. Um, and one of our, our last um, dispatches out to the agricultural community was a list of six or eight different apps that you could use um, to do online ordering. Um, and so, 
No, we want to make sure that consumers feel comfortable, that the farms are using safe practices, um, and that they can still um, manage their commerce. I was emailing back and forth with a woman um, on Thursday night. Um, she is. Uh, she was asking if we had, you know, any guidance or any any information about who was open. And I sent her, you know, the list of what we had. Turns out there was a farm uh, in her community that was open that had instituted curbside pickup. Um, and she was really thankful. She's immunocompromised. Did not want to be in a grocery store. Did not feel comfortable there. Um, did not really want to be out any more than she needed to be. And this was a great way for her local farm. Um, to meet her needs. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot more of that. The we're hearing, uh, Commissioner, we... we're hearing that there are certain dairy farms are also uh, delivering milk. That's true. That's, um, we, we've, we've got a couple of dairy delivery operations. Um, and this is another one. Mountain Dairy um, was, uh, has, has gone back to home delivery. This was something they stopped doing uh, eight or nine years ago. Um, they've reinstituted it. Um, this is they, they started delivering milk, and I believe it was 1871. Um, so getting back to the roots, it's a, it's a terrific story um, about how businesses are adapting and making sure people are getting what they need um, through all this. We're hearing that there are definitely vulnerable residents in our communities who may not be able to leave their homes or they don't have certain funds to pay for food. Do we know if farmers are working with local food banks as well? Farmers have consistently worked with local food banks. Um, and I think right now the food banks, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, received a lot of food donations last week you know, as bars and restaurants and our major institutions um, started shutting down operations, a lot of that food was put into the emergency food um, system. And I think, um, you know, once that supply is exhausted, and I'm not even sure that it, it was enough to, to cover the need, um, we'll see more farms and the call will go out for more donations um, to, uh, to the emergency food system and, and the operations. That's a, that's a critically important um, piece uh, that, uh, that we need to make sure that, as you said, for folks that may not have the ability um, that they're still getting, you know, proper nutrition and access to food during all this. What kind of guidance is your department giving to farmers if they get sick or if their their workers get sick? Is there a, a plan in place to help farms if if they need help with with labor if people are getting sick and they don't have a lot of other people to to lean on? That's been part of our uh, messaging. You know, what is your plan for continued operations? Um, and, and make sure you really think through it. Um, that, that is critical. And, you know, some, you know, we, we want everybody to be safe. We want them to, to practice, um, you know, staying home if they can, staying away from people, continue the social distancing, doing the things like I mentioned earlier uh, uh, of alternating shifts. Um, we're going to have a, 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 a virtual town hall this evening with the Connecticut Farm Bureau. Um, and one of the points that, uh, that was brought up that we should share is if you need help, you know, we have networks. And so if for whatever reason you are short-staffed, 
don't bring somebody in who's who's got COVID or who isn't feeling well. You know, let's see if there's a resource in the ag community and from a neighboring farm that can help you through this. Um, and that's part of our, our message this evening. Um, again, we want people to be safe. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, farmers helping farmers is something that's been going on um, for a very long time. Um, and we want to, you know, reestablish that, um, that community aspect um, so that everybody can get through this. When we think about uh, farmers markets, a lot of vendors uh, close together, uh, dealing with customers. Uh, mm-hmm. I assume that you'll be recommending that if farmers markets continue, that there's like six feet in between uh, people and mm-hmm. vendors? That's that's exactly it, Lucy. As, as, as we move forward um, with this, you know, spread out the, the booths more. Um, you know, the farmer should have gloves on. The farmer should be the only person touching any of the foodstuffs. You know, they should be the ones putting it in a bag. Um, you know, generally the, the, the atmosphere and the environment at a farmer's market is you come up, you can, you know, me, the customer can touch and look and feel and see what I want, you know, pick out the, the specific item. You know, I don't think that's the way we want to, we want to do this, um, for the next couple months. We want to make sure we're, we're really safe. Um, there has been no uh, known case of COVID being transmitted on food, um, but let's just take extra precautions. You know, I mean, this is this is something we need to take very, very seriously, um, and it's a minor inconvenience um, to, to not be able to pick out, you know, your your particular plant or, or vegetable or fruit. Um, but it's in it's in the best interest of you and, you, and your family and your community. So, you know, we're going to be messaging that out. Um, as part of our guidance to farmers markets. And one more for you, Commissioner. We know that there are some Connecticut farms that rely on seasonal workers who have temporary visas to come and work in Connecticut during the growing season. Are there any concerns from local farmers that with COVID-19, this will limit these workers from getting into the country? And then what happens if they get sick? Who takes care of them? Yeah, that, that's a uh, that's a, a question that um, I've actually spent a lot of time on in the past few days. Um, with embassies shutting down across the across the world, um, there's nobody there to process the H-2A paperwork. We actually had two um, conference calls with USDA Secretary Purdue last week about this. Um, USDA is working with the department, uh, uh, the State Department and the Labor Department down in D.C. Um, to find paths through this. Um, one of the things that USDA did announce late last week, I think it was on Thursday, is that those H-2A employees that are here in the country um, that would normally have to um, return to their uh, home country before coming back um, are going to be eligible to stay, and they've, they've publicized how you can, uh, as a farmer who needs labor, um, be in touch with um, the appropriate um, agency to get those people assigned to your farm. The other piece is um, they, the USDA is, is working with, with the state, um, with the State Department that would allow people who have regularly come in. So if you're, if you're going to be essentially a returning worker, kind of an expedited process, so you won't have to go through the normal procedure. Um, and so, you know, they'll, they'll be cleared to come in. Now, the, the question that we have um, that, we, that we've got to work on next is, you know, how do we get these individuals into the country um, and how do we make sure that they understand um, the proper safety procedures and protocols um, during the growing season? Um, and once, and, a, I'm, I'm sorry, Commissioner, but once they uh, arrive and if they end up getting sick, I mean, who takes care of them then? 
Well, I, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it would, it would fall, you know, to the normal safety net um, if they don't have an employer-sponsored insurance. Well, we want to thank Brian Herbert for joining us. Commissioner of the State Department of Agriculture will be sure to, to follow up with you in the next uh, few weeks to find out um, how that issue is, is resolved for local farms that rely on seasonal workers. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining us here on Where We Live. Thank you very much. Have a great show. Uh, again, this is from Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to shift and talk about uh, what a lot of people are worried about lately, and that's uh, losing their job because of closures due to coronavirus. Now, we're going to talk with an attorney about what workers and their employers should know. You can join us, too, especially if you have a question about unemployment or the process moving forward. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thousands of Connecticut workers have filed unemployment claims over the last week. Nationally, the number of Americans out of work this past week could be more than 2 million as governments and businesses shut down over coronavirus. Now, what should workers and their employers know about navigating the next few weeks and months? Attorney Dan Schwartz is a partner at Shipman and Goodwin LLP, where he practices employment law, among others. He joins us now via Zoom. Uh, Dan, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Nice to be with you. Dan's also the author of the independent Connecticut Employment Law blog. We'll be sure to tweet that out at where we live. Uh, Dan, it's becoming a cliche, but we have to say it. We're in unprecedented times. This pandemic is shutting down governments and businesses. So many people are losing their jobs in such a short time. What kinds of questions are you getting from employers? Uh, yeah, no, you're right. It's it really is unprecedented here, and I I can't remember a stretch uh, like we've had over the last few weeks. I mean, it, it was just a month ago when I was having conversations with employers about hiring and uh, growing businesses, and now all of a sudden uh, the conversations are um, just very very um, dark. Which is, look, we we have employees who we love, um, but we have no business coming in the door. What can we uh, do. So um, a, a lot of the conversations have turned to how to um, minimize per, the impact on employees, um, allow them to continue health insurance, for example, um, and also get the employees on the unemployment uh, roles as quickly as they they can uh, under the circumstances. So it's it's um, it's been tough conversations uh, all, all week, and uh, the pace at which this is happening, uh, I, I think, leaves everyone a, a little unsettled. We all have heard by now Governor Lamont's Stay Home, Stay Safe, Stay Home initiative. Uh, last night, the State uh, Department of Economic and Community Development releasing more guidance on which businesses are considered essential during that time. Overall, uh, what are these categories, Dan? Yeah, so um, I, I think the, the categories uh, really fall a little less with essential and non-essential as to what 
um, and, and there are clearly some that are essential government services, utilities, um, manufacturing, uh, defense industries, uh, things around the infrastructure. Um, but there are also some other jobs that are being allowed to continue that have very little uh, interaction either with the public or with uh, with others. So it's a long list. Uh, we've actually um, been, been trying to parse through it last night and this morning. Um, and I think for employers, they really need to take a careful look at that list uh, and figure out, do they um, provide one of these uh, key services uh, either to the public or to the government? Uh, and if not, how can they take the jobs that they have and make them remote uh, or um, you know, work at home. Um, and I think that's an important uh, point that I think has gotten a little lost, which is uh, the, the order takes some of those jobs and doesn't say you can't do the work. It's just saying we're not going to allow it in a workplace mm -hmm. uh, with others. Um, and, and that at least preserves some jobs. There, there are going to be others, particularly the small businesses um, who, who need to um, reduce their business. Um, the order last night did clarify that some of those small businesses can also still allow for deliveries and some curbside um, uh, takeouts. They just don't, aren't allowing the stores uh, that are there. Um, but I think those smaller businesses that really rely on foot traffic, uh, those are the ones that we're hearing from and are, are really going to be hurting over the next couple of weeks. You can join our conversation with Dan Schwartz, an attorney, a partner with Shipman and Goodwin LLP, the number 888-720-9677 or 888-720-WNPR. If you're a worker or an employer unsure about uh, the next few weeks and months, again, uh, with uh, shutdowns because of coronavirus and you have a question, again, you can also tweet us at Facebook uh, at uh, Where We Live and also find us on Facebook to search uh, Where We Live. For uh, people who are non-essential, if their businesses, uh, if employers are working remotely or doing telework, they must be paid under the law. But for employees that can't work remotely, what does that mean for them, Dan? Yeah, that's that's the the really tough questions, and I think there are a couple of answers that we've been giving, um, depending on the situation. So some employers are going to have to lay off their 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 workers. Uh, I, I think it. Um, in that situation, those workers are going to be eligible immediately for unemployment. There is no waiting period anymore. The employees don't have to be looking for active work that um, said the Department of Labor. So um, employers that, that have to do that can uh, put their employees uh, on layoff uh, and allow them to collect unemployment. Uh, some other employers have been putting employees what's on what's called furlough which essentially says, look, we don't have any work for you. You have zero hours for the week. We're not going to pay you. Um, that and typically would allow the employee to continue to stay on the employees in the employer's health plan, which I think is a, a huge benefit during this time um, and still allows the employee to apply for unemployment uh, benefits at the same time. Uh, so that's been another option. Uh, for other employers, um, what's going to happen in the next uh, week and a half or so is we're going to start to see the impact of the new federal legislation which was passed. Uh, that federal legislation will start 
providing uh, employees with paid uh, emergency paid sick leave um, and some protected leave uh, with some pay under conditions either to care for themselves if they come down with the illness or to to care for others who are coming down with the illness uh, as well. That's not going to help people who have been laid off today, unfortunately, or furloughed today. Um, but for those who have to continue working, uh, that federal legislation will will um, at least provide some minimum of a safety net. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Uh, Robert's calling from New Haven. Robert, what's your question? My question is, I've heard that grocery stores and other big box stores that are deemed essential are actually crying out for employees. Uh, that they're short-staffed, and I'm wondering, is there a way, or has anybody considered, instead of a lot of people on unemployment, you know, possibly sliding them over temporarily to certain, uh, certain you know, uh, vendors that are actually, you know, desperate for employees and as, a, as an alternative to unemployment? Uh, thank you, Robert, for your call. Uh, certainly that would be an option for some people, uh, Dan. Yeah, no, I think it is. And I think uh, for those particularly, you know, we're hearing from the, the so-called gig economy workers who um, are, are, are really hurting now, um, the, the drivers and some of that. Um, those are going to be options for some people, for others who um, who need to take care of their kids at home because their kids are home from school. Um, it, it, it may not be viable for others, but I think those that um, – that want to uh, support the uh, the industries that are hiring. Uh, I, I think there are some limited jobs available. It just may not match the the skill set or the the skills that people are are used to, and 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 the pay that they're uh, needing to replace. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's 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 tough. We're going to see a lot of stories over the next couple of months of people who um, who have lost their jobs, and and it's 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 going to be heartbreaking. Uh, Before we take more calls here on Where We Live, the number 888-720-9677, I'm wondering, Dan, if you could break down the the whole process with unemployment. If an employer has to lay off a worker, what should that employer be giving to their worker? What should the worker be asking for? Yeah, so typically there's a form that's available um, to be filled out online, could be given to someone called the UC61. Um, I have to credit the Department of Labor has really done a great job of late of simplifying the, the process, um, putting it, it up on their website. Uh, it's You go to the Connecticut Department of Labor site, not the U.S. Department of Labor website, and they have packets of information um, that are easily uh, either printed or you can email the links to people. Um, and, and it's a simple form just to say, look, we don't have the work. You indicate sort of lack of work. Um, we've heard, I, the last I heard about a week ago is that it was easier to process the application if there was a um, expected return to work date, say in six or eight weeks. I don't know if that's still the case, um, just given the numbers that they've been trying to process. But um, that's how employers uh, should be handling it, which is to give the employee uh, the form or, or giving them the link to fill out. Um, and the employee can, can do all of that now online um, and can start applying for benefits from day one. Um, and I think uh, 
that process allows for some um, salary replacement uh, up to a cap of uh, it's about 600 uh, or so dollars, a little higher than that. But um, it'll at least provide some some uh, protection in the short term. You're hearing Dan Schwartz, partner at Shipman and Goodwin LLP. He practices employment law. He also blogs at the Independent Connecticut Employment Law blog. Uh, Anthony is calling into where we live from Gales Ferry. Anthony, you're on the show. Uh, hello, yes. Uh, my son is self-employed, and he has to deal with people every day. He's a carpenter, and he has to go. Uh, in fact, today he's dealing with a person at their home. Uh, how does this affect him if, if he can't go to the people's home and do the work? What, what resources does he have? Uh, thank you, Anthony, for your call. So someone who is self-employed, uh, they aren't eligible for unemployment insurance, Dan? Yeah, typically not. It, it depends on the buy-in process. But self-employed people, I think that's really one of the... Um, I, I, you can call it holes, gaps um, uh, that are really out there. Um, and, and people who are self-employed really, uh, when something like this happens, have no uh, good safety net to rely on. And, and it's challenging. And for those who are um, living paycheck to paycheck, um, it's, it, it's tough to hear. And I think for, for, the, for the carpenters and, and the other workers who are out there who are doing the services in the home, I think the, the advice we've been telling employers is to provide as much protection uh, as as they can um, to follow all the CDC uh, guidelines about taking the necessary precautions um, and trying to um, to take uh, not take unnecessary risk. Um, but this is going to be one of those situations where the guidance continues to to change as we understand the risk and understand what we can and, and can't do uh, to keep ourselves safe. Kat on Twitter writes, my husband is self-employed consultant with 100% of his customers overseas. With international travel shut down, he didn't have any income this year. Is filing for unemployment an option because he is self-employed? Is that a no, Dan? Probably not, but I think um, what we've been encouraging people to do is um, to go to the Department of Labor, ask, um, even you know, consider filing. Uh, they may be denied, but but at least they'll figure out some of those options uh, as well. We've heard that as well on. Um, people whose hours have been reduced from a full-time and now they're only working part-time. Uh, there is a provision for partial unemployment benefits as well um, that people may not be aware of. So there's more that's out there. Um, I would also encourage people, if they haven't heard yet, the Access Health Connecticut, the, um, uh, the health exchange is now reopened its um, enrollment uh, for people. So if they don't have insurance as of yet, um, this is the absolute right time. Um, I think it's Access Health CT um, to go and get enrolled on the health insurance because the last thing we would want is someone who isn't working 
um, who then doesn't have insurance as well. And at least this uh, option allows for people to um, to get enrolled right now during this special enrollment period. Dan, that's an excellent point. We're going to tweet out information to Access Health CT uh, at where we live. You can also join us again as we talk about what workers and employers should know over the next few weeks and months with attorney uh, Dan Schwartz from Shipman and Goodwin. The number 888-720-9677 if you have a specific employment-related question. Uh, Pam's calling from Cheshire. Pam, what's your question? Pam, can you hear me? Oh, I don't think Pam can hear me. I'm going to actually put her on hold, and hopefully we can get back to her uh, later in uh, the hour. Uh, But I had a question for you, Dan, in terms of when someone is either ill or maybe they've been diagnosed with COVID-19, what protections are there for them in terms of being able to keep their jobs? Yeah, so um, there's actually quite a bit of protections for those employees uh, to be aware of. First, um, Connecticut does have um, paid sick leave uh, or paid time off that needs to be provided by employers in certain job categories. It's not for everyone uh, as of yet. So uh, that's a good place to start, which is the Connecticut rule on paid time off. Um, But then now we also have um, this new law that that came out that will be effective April 2nd uh, that will provide some additional leave. Um, Let me back up and say, Connecticut and federal law both have the Family Medical Leave Act. So if you're working at an employer with 50 or more employees, um, you're eligible to take time off to care for yourself or for others for a serious health condition. And I think um, all the guidance is suggesting that COVID-19 is that serious health condition. It's unpaid uh, under under both of those laws for now, but uh, that's an option to take the time off and protect protect yourself. But starting April 2nd now, um, if you work at an employer under 500 employees, um, the employer will need to provide uh, both this emergency paid sick leave that I was referencing, which will cover the first 80 hours, um, and you can uh, get paid at different rate, um, depending on whether you're caring for yourself or for a family member. Uh, and then after that point in time, uh, there is some leave protections as well. If you're, again, taking care of others or even taking care of a minor child who may be home uh, because the school is closed. So there's a lot of details there. It's tough to get into um, on, a, on a quick call like this, but I, I think you want to look up the information if you're still working to understand that you're going to have some protection starting April 2nd uh, at your workplace. And, and that'll be important for people who uh, sometimes feel like they have to go into work sick. Now, this with this protections, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, you should be taking the leave that's being provided to you by, by the government. Let's take some calls now. Marie is calling from Niantic. Marie, you're on the show. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering if you could address the um, issue of paid time off. I have uh, two friends who both have had their hours reduced by their employers. One is being forced to use paid time off for the reduced hours, and the other one is being prohibited from using paid time off. I'm just wondering if you could address that and whether there's any uh, ruling in the state of Connecticut about that and how that affects um, their claim if they wanted to claim unemployment. Thank you. 
All right, Dan. <laughs> you're, you're, you're welcome. I think, um, first off, let's let's state the obvious, which is this has been a, a sort of unique situation. And I think things have been, and the guidance that we've been giving and hearing keeps changing a little bit uh, over time. So I'm not surprised to hear sort of different uh, stories and different how different employers are handling this. I think there was an initial time a couple of weeks ago where people said, oh, we'll just give them time off and um, we'll, we'll make them use their, their paid time off. And, and, and that's, that can be okay um, about that. Other employers are now realizing Geez, the, the time off policies that we have um, aren't really covering the situation. And we may be giving sort of this supplemental time off that we didn't plan for, um, but can be allowed. I think the basic rule is employers have, have some flexibility on the paid time off uh, rules about, you know, requiring employees to use it or not use it. Um, I think if you're an employer that's out there, we've been encouraging them to be flexible, be understanding um, with the goal that uh, what you really want to do is is make sure your workplace stays uh, as uh, COVID-19 free as possible um, and encouraging employees to stay home uh, if they're sick or have a family member is sick is probably one of the best ways to do so. So... Um, I think to the extent employers have the rules, it's sort of looking at them and relooking at them and trying to figure out what works best for their particular workplace. And just to clarify, if you're at home in quarantine because somebody in your household may be ill but not diagnosed yet with COVID-19, an employer, do they have to pay you during that time of quarantine? Um, they don't um, as of yet. I think as of April 2nd, when this federal law kicks in, that's going to trigger some of the um, the paid sick leave and, and uh, FMLA protections that, that are kicking in. So that's why I said the rules keep changing as we've been uh, dealing with this. Uh, I, I think in discussions we've had with employers, we've said, hey, look, if, if you don't need to pay someone, you, you ought to consider whether you can do so during this time. It'll, it'll help bring that employee back uh, sooner. And uh, under the circumstances, I think a lot of employers have been, uh, been understanding where they, where they can afford it. Uh, Pam's calling from Cheshire. Pam, are you there? Yes. All right, what's your question? Yes, I was wondering on the separation uh, packet, how do you designate that it's a furlough? And when you mentioned it allowed uh, employers to continue health benefits, I was wondering if that's mandatory or optional, and if an employer does continue them, um, do they have to continue them until they're called back, uh, especially since we don't know how long this is going to go on? Thank you, Pam. Dan Schwartz. Yeah, so good, good, good questions. Um, I, I think the uh, for the furlough, it's just simply a lack of work, um, it, you know. And and you can also write in the other and explain that we we don't have the work for people. Um, in terms of the health insurance question, um, it, it's it's a good question, and you should really talk with your. Um, your plan administrators, um, your agents, your companies to, to understand what your plan actually says. I said earlier, I said most plans can be continued, um, but it really depends on the language of the plan. So um, 
so you want to look at that as to whether the employer needs to do that. Um, typically, if an employee is going from full time down to either part time or no time, it, it really does become the employer option as to whether the employee is eligible c- to continue or not. Uh, so you're going to want to look at those plans in particular. Um, one important point even under that circumstance or someone else is laid off, um, that would likely trigger COBRA. And COBRA is the continuation of of health benefit law that is out there. Um, And so even if someone is laid off, they they can continue the health insurance. Now, it's at a high, high rate. And if the employer isn't able to supplement their portion or pay for, for the premiums, it's, it may be unaffordable to some, but at least um, the health insurance is still out there uh, for those that can, um, that, that need it. We're going to take one more call. Uh, Larry's calling from Terryville. Larry, we just have a couple of minutes. Go ahead quickly. Uh, yes. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I, I have uh, two quick questions. Well, not quick, but um I have a daughter in Connecticut, daughter in New York City. The daughter in Connecticut, they're both going to be laid off eventually. The daughter in Connecticut is debating whether to leave her job because her, her child, children are no longer um, able to go to daycare. If she does leave her job, um, by her choice, will she be able to collect unemployment? My daughter in New York City has been reduced 25% in pay, and she's going to be laid off eventually. When she gets laid off, will she be able to collect based on her 100% salary that she used to get. Thank you, Larry. So let's start with the, the woman in New York in terms of reduced salary. Um, he wants to find out how much she can collect. So um, I, I will not pretend to be a New York expert. <laughs> I think the best advice we can give people is um, to look at the, the website for New York. Um, I think each state has some different rules as we've been talking with employers in different states. Um, I was surprised to learn Florida, for example, has really, really low unemployment uh, reimbursement rates, far, far lower. I think their cap is something like $250. So um, understand that what the rule is in Connecticut may not apply in New York. And I think the best thing to do is look at the website, um, look at some of the uh, resources that are out there for the employee, uh, employees um, and for individuals and, and try to figure that out because the rules may uh, are changing. Uh, New York, for example, offers some disability leave that uh, Connecticut doesn't have. And they just implemented that uh, a week or two ago. So you want to look at that. And then quickly for the daughter that wants to leave her job to take care of her kids who are home from school, uh, if she leaves uh, willingly, does that mean she's not able to apply for unemployment, Dan? Uh, That's a little bit unclear at this point, I think. um, uh, And I would want that person to check with the Department of Labor. Uh, They put out a a frequently asked questions uh, that was just released in the last uh, couple of days or so from the Connecticut Department of Labor. Typically, resignations are not eligible for unemployment, but in this circumstance where someone uh, has to take care of their kids and doesn't really have a choice, uh, the Department of Labor uh, may be offering some more flexibility and may redefine things. So you'll want to look at that and, and, uh, uh, and, and be careful when, when you're doing that. 
Dan Schwartz, a partner at Chipman and Goodwin LLP. Dan, thank you so much for answering our listeners' questions. We appreciate your time, and we hope to have you back as, again, we look to see how uh, the labor uh, industry, uh, markets, and jobs change over the next few weeks and months. Dan, thank you. Thank you, Lucy, as always. And you can check out Dan's independent blog at Connecticut Employment Law Blog. We'll tweet that out at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. After the break, we're going to find out how some local cultural institutions are trying to stay connected to their patrons despite having to close. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now via Zoom is Eileen Frank, Chief Curator of Connecticut, the Connecticut Historical Society. Eileen, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We wanted to reach out to you because uh, so many uh, museums and other places are closed because of the coronavirus shutdown. Tell us about um, the status of the Connecticut Historical Society and how are you hoping to still reach patrons? Absolutely. So um, we are complying with the governor's executive order. We have been closed to the public um, for more than a week now, and that will continue through at least April 22nd, according to the executive order. So we're doing um, a lot of um, learning, like everyone else, how to use all these virtual platforms and moving our content online to things like Zoom, using our YouTube channel more, our social media. We want to make sure that we stay connected to all of our friends and members of the Connecticut Historical Society. We just have a few minutes. Walk us through some of the online exhibits that that people can see when they go to your website. And what is the website again? Our website is chs.org. And on that website, we have a couple of features that people might want to look at. There's a virtual exhibit of G. Fox for those who remember the great department store. We also have a really great timeline of LGBTQ history. That was from a project we did last year in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And um, on our Facebook page and our YouTube page, just on Saturday, we launched um, a short video of our Pieces of American History Connecticut Quilts exhibit, um, which we were so impressed. It's already had over 1,200 views just since Saturday, which is way more than any other video Um, that we usually post. So people are responding to this new way of getting history content. We're hoping that it provides um, some education, some entertainment um, during these, you know, trying days, and we're going to continue to produce more content. How is the Connecticut Historical Society working with local school districts and parents who are now homeschooling their children while trying to work as well? Yeah, so um, our education staff is reaching out to the teachers and the school districts. Normally, we serve 14 to 16,000 students on site and through outreach programs. Those, of course, have all been canceled at the moment. So they're working with those teachers to um, look at how we can continue to do distance learning, um, convert some of our programs, especially our Revolutionary War history programs, into a distance learning experience. Um, So that is evolving as we speak. And for families, we have a very, very popular free first Saturday program, um, which April 4th would have been our next one. We were going to celebrate Earth Day. And um, again, the education team is converting that to um, an online presentation where um, families can sit down. They'll be able to be guided through a craft with household products, learn a little bit about the history of Earth Day, and maybe still have that experience that they would have had in the museum just in their own homes. When you talk about online programming, so are you thinking also about how people can connect via Zoom, for instance, and, and hear from educators? 
Yeah, so we definitely, you know, um, we definitely want to look at the platforms that allow a connection and, and conversation. So Zoom is something that we are using more. Um, we are looking into hosting maybe a weekly uh, Ask a Historian, Ask a Curator coffee hour and just have a, a subject matter and kind of have a little chat, you know, bring your bring your mug and uh, join us for a talk. So the, we're so thankful that, um, you know, in 2020, we have these technologies where we can still connect with our community. This all sounds uh, really valuable, but at the same time, museums like yours rely on members and donors. You know, how can uh, museums, historical societies uh, stay afloat during this pandemic? You're closed till April 22nd. It, it may be extended. Um, yes, and that is a, a real concern. I mean, there is definitely a loss of revenue, like so many businesses are um, seeing right now. And the museum community in Connecticut is almost 800 institutions. If you count, um, you know, all of the history, art, science, aquariums, zoos, um, we contribute over um, $402 million in economic impact to the state. And so we are um, having to look at how we can get support from our members and donors during these times when everyone's being asked to reevaluate their giving. Um, and then also maybe there might be a time when we are able to provide some of this content um, with a small donation button or, or something. It, it, is, it is a concern and we all have employees that we wanna keep employed. I'm so thankful for the conversation earlier about what businesses are doing. Um, the not-for-profit community and especially the cultural not-for-profit community is definitely a business sector and we have those same concerns as agriculture, as small business, retail. So we are looking to stay afloat. Are you talking with other historical societies in other states to see how, how they're also trying to stay operational during these times, Eileen? Yes, I mean, we're, we're definitely looking at the Connecticut community with um, Connecticut League of History organizations and Connecticut Humanities to um, statewide organizations that bring us together as a community. But we are looking also to our colleagues um, through the New England Museum Association and others um, about what they're doing, um, how they're delivering services, um, how they're trying out um, new technologies. And so um, that's one of the nice things about the uh, museum cultural community is, is we are collaborative and we like to talk to each other and however we can help each other through this, we will. Well, we want to thank you, Eileen, for joining us here on Where We Live to provide some of those online resources, uh, pointing our listeners, parents especially, to these online exhibits um, at your website. We'll make sure that we'll tweet those out at Where We Live, also shared on Facebook and our website, wmpr.org slash Where We Live. Eileen Frank is Chief Curator of the Connecticut Historical Society. Eileen, thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Katie Tularski helped out on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, if we're missing a particular story or angle in your community as uh, much of the state is shut down because of the coronavirus pandemic, please email me at lucy at ctpublic.org and we'll be sure to follow up. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>